Welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Um, podcasts of this and all of our local programs are available on our website, iowaradioreading.org. So taking a look at the front page of the Globe Gazette, that's where we'll start. There's a large photo. The headline is The Gift of Life, and it shows Rachel Horst of St. Ansgar prepares what is known as a double red donation. So there's a woman sitting in an office chair, both hands up, um, and there's a machine they're hooking her up to that separates red blood cells from plasma in a process called apheresis. And then the other story on the front page, Mason City native finds niche in Mitchell County. So we'll start off with the story about the blood donation. It says national blood shortage reaching crisis levels. This is from Robin McClellan. The national blood supply has dwindled to critically low levels, according to the Red Cross. The supply depends entirely upon donors. Iowa is the only state in the union with rising cancer rates. In addition, Iowa's elderly adult population is higher than the national average. These populations are most likely to need a blood transfusion, making the shortage a high regional priority. Donating blood is a life-saving gift. In Mason City, the LifeServe Blood Center is not just a donor center. It's also a distribution site. Operations Director Estella Dunning manages the center with blend, with a blend of precision and nurturing. Staff move smoothly through their paces in the distribution portion of the building. And in the lobby, conversation between donors and workers is lighthearted and familiar. Last week, Rachel Horst of St. Ansgar settled comfortably into her seat as a phlebotomist prepared her for a, quote, double red donation. Horst is a regular donor and can return every four months to donate her double portion of red cells. Anne Damaris is another familiar face at the LifeServe Center. Quote, I've been donating every two months since I was 18, she said. Over 42 years, I've donated a lot. Not long ago, I got a sticker for donating 15 gallons here at LifeServe. Who knows how much I donated at the Red Cross when they were here, she said with a laugh. Damaris is a whole blood donor. The process takes less than an hour, and she's willing to give up that time, knowing the difference a blood transfusion can have for a patient in crisis. I've never needed blood myself, she said. I do it because it can save a life. Dunning says, donors should know when they donate at a LifeServe center that blood is destined for nearby communities. Quote, we distribute within our coverage area. Hospitals and clinics order from us, and we provide blood products directly to those locations. Our volunteers pick up and deliver orders when they're needed, Dunning said. When there are major events like the school shooting in Perry, we respond immediately. A patient needs a hospital transfusion every two seconds in the United States. Blood products such as whole blood, red blood cells, platelets, and plasma are needed to treat a variety of ailments. For hospital patients over the age of 64, transfusion is the second most common medical procedure. According to Impact Life, that's an Eastern Iowa blood bank, 3.5% to 5.1% of hospital stays 
involve a transfusion of whole blood or blood products. Gunshot victims are five times more likely to require transfusion and can use more than 10 times the units of blood than a motor vehicle accident, non-gun assault, or fall. Patients undergoing cancer treatment often receive blood products. Chemotherapy and radiation can disrupt the body's natural production of red blood cells and platelets, and transfusion can give cancer patients the strength they need for recovery. In Iowa, LifeServe Blood Centers serves 73 counties. Following the tragic school shooting in Perry on January 4th, LifeServe sent blood to the hospitals providing care for the victims. Mass trauma situations, such as shootings, can take a heavy toll on local blood supplies. Maintaining that supply requires a steady influx of regular donors. Blood and blood products have short shelf lives. Safely storing blood for future use is a careful and detailed process. A donation of a pint of whole blood can help up to three patients. While many donors contribute whole blood, there are ways to donate plasma, red blood cells, and platelets as well. Using a process called apheresis, a machine can separate the components of your blood as it is being drawn. Once collected, the blood is tested and white cells are removed to prevent a reaction in the patient receiving the blood. The blood product is then packaged into standardized units for distribution. Double red donation is a process that uses apheresis to remove twice the amount of red blood cells as would be taken in a whole blood donation. The phlebotomist monitors the machine as it separates the plasma and returns it to the donor. Platelets can also be donated in this way. Platelets are small cell fragments in the blood that contribute to clotting. These fragments These fragments group and stick together in a clot that blocks the vessel opening, preventing blood loss. This vital mechanism can help trauma patients heal, as well as support those with clotting disorders. Plasma is the fluid in which red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets flow. This fluid has nutrients, proteins, and important factors that can provide volume for the circulatory system and needed fluids for burn, trauma, or cancer patients. Kirby Wynn is the public relations manager for Impact Life, based out of Davenport. Quote, shortages come from a number of factors. Here in Iowa, we just experienced a pretty major weather event. Unfortunately, we have to cancel some of our blood drives for the safety of our donors. Donors have to cancel appointments, too. We're just coming off of the holidays when people have busy schedules, so that's another factor in collection when both Impact Iowa and LifeServe make the process easy to understand. Wynn says sometimes donors are are uncertain if they're eligible due to medical conditions or medications they take. It's easy to say to yourself, oh, I wasn't eligible last time, or oh, I'm taking a new medication, and delay donating. We have a simple online questionnaire to help you determine your eligibility, Wynn said. LifeServe also offers online registration and eligibility. Dunning recommends looking over the requirements online, but encourages anyone with questions to come in to have them addressed. Quote, you can do it all online or when you come in, we can help you through the process, she said. There's a short list of questions. Then we do a mini physical on site to ensure that donors are ready. The whole blood donation process takes just under an hour 
from the moment a donor walks in the door. Those donating through apheresis may experience slightly longer collection times. In Mason City, the well-staffed lobby is welcoming and homey. Staff care for donors before, during, and after the collection process. After their donations, a group of women sat at a table brimming with drinks and snacks to replenish their strength. As she nibbled on a snack, Anne Damaris said with satisfaction to no one in particular, a good day. And then it shows a photo of a pair of hands um, working on a cart. And the hands belong to a phlebotomist preparing for a double red donation, which is that machine that separates red blood cells and plasma and then returns the plasma to the patient and collecting the red cells for hospital use. Our next story from the front page, Mason City Native Finds Niche in Mitchell County. Uh, This is from Jason W. Selby. Ryan Stevens' first computer ran Windows 95. It was boxy and antiquated compared to its brethren in 2024. Now, Steven is the IT director for Mitchell County, and he believes the role will be a perfect fit for his acumen as a computer technician. I always gravitated toward computers, even when I was younger, Stephen said. It was something I was passionate about. So I just kept on that path. Stephen was born in Portland, Oregon. His parents met when his mother was a traveling nurse. When he was four years old, his family was faced with a choice. Move to Las Vegas to be with his father's family or relocate to the Midwest to live closer to his grandparents, Gisela and Jewel Ryman in Osage. His parents chose the latter. While Stephen grew up in Mason City, he spent much of his time with his grandparents in Mitchell County, bowling. Stephen graduated from Mason City High in 2003. His mother was a public health nurse, and Stephen was an only child. That forced him to be closer to his parents, though his father passed away 15 years ago. The big thing my mom taught me was compassion and understanding of people, Stephen said. A lot of times that's what people need, and, and, and is a lot of times what people need is someone to be there for them. His father bought him his first computer at Radio Shack, and Stephen has been tinkering ever since. Even before that, his family gave him the original Nintendo gaming system when he was three years old. He couldn't read yet, so when he was playing The Legend of Zelda, his mother had to read the captions for him. He still plays The Legend of Zelda, which has put out numerous titles since the original. His parents encouraged him to try all athletics. Stephen played tennis and bowled in high school and was successful in both individual sports. His best bowling scores were in the 240s. His grandmother, Gisela, got him started in bowling. She's in the Iowa State Bowling Association Hall of Fame. Stephen also loved choir. He was involved with Stebbins Children's Theater in Mason City, and even today, he enjoys singing and performing on stage. He does some acting at his church, Grace Evangelical. When Stephen did not excel at school, he was a smart kid. He didn't like school and found it boring. He needed to be challenged. However, if he could go back now, he says he would treat it differently, knowing its value. While he took some classes at North Iowa Area Community College, He didn't pursue college. He went straight into the workforce at Best Buy in Mason City, which was new when Stephen graduated from high school. I've done it through the experience way, Stephen said. I like to call it the hard way. I was ready to go out into the world. Best Buy gave him the chance to work with computers. 
He was a member of the Geek Squad, which is Best Buy's IT department. While at Best Buy, he ruined Christmas, at least according to some customers. I ruined people's Christmases quite a few times, Stephen explained, especially when the Wii came out. It was wild that holiday season. I got told I was a horrible person. One woman actually threw a telephone at him. The Nintendo Wii was a motion-activated gaming system that was so popular when it was first manufactured that Best Buy could not keep it in stock, and people got desperate. You seem to remember difficult customers the most, Stephen said, but when you reflect on it, there were they were few and far between. I learned over the years that it's not personal. St- Stephen met his first wife, Angie, after he moved on from Best Buy to work at Verizon. Angie works for Youth for Christ in Mason City, is the middle school campus life director. They have two children, Bryce, age 20, and Elijah, age 2. After Verizon, when Stephen began at the IT department at Cerro Gordo County, his mother was still a public health nurse, so they worked together. His mother had found the job opening for her son. He began as an IT assistant and worked his way up the ladder. A lot of folks couldn't work with their mothers, but it was a blessing for me, Stephen said. It was a shot in the dark for the county job, and I ended up landing it. Stephen worked for Cerro Gordo County for 10 years. It was so much better than Best Buy, he said. It was a natural progression in jobs. If you're going to work your way up the career chain, like retail or any service industry, it's nice to get out of that. That's where I could start learning more IT skills. Stephen still considers IT as a customer service in a sense. However, he doesn't have to worry about his bosses needing to make a profit, which is something he appreciates. After a decade, Cerro Gordo County eliminated his position. Quote, The situation wasn't ideal. You never want that to happen. Stephen said of the job with the county coming to the end, it ended up being a blessing in disguise. He took some time away to be with his family when Elijah was born before becoming system administrator for Next Generation Technologies. While there, he kept an eye out for something that might fit his skill set better. He always enjoyed county government, and when he saw the Mitchell County job, he jumped at the chance to return to public service. He believes his personality fits well in IT. In in Mitchell County, he feels like he can be himself. He began his job as IT director for Mitchell County January 2nd, His previous experience in government helps. IT gets to work with a variety of departments, something Stephen enjoys. Stephen will be working with departments such as conservation, public health, the auditor, secondary roads, and the sheriff's office. I like the government because they're not trying to make a profit, Stephen said. There's not that profit motive as compared to Best Buy or Verizon. That creates a different environment, which I enjoy. It's a lot more engaging. I always say I have a lot more in common with the maintenance person. My first goal is to make sure everyone can do their jobs to the best of their ability. For that to happen, computers have to be working. It is user first. It comes down to the people doing the job. Stephen also believes his past relationships in county government will come in handy. He's appreciative of this chance. He says it's a blessing. He's come a long way since Windows 95 and The Legend of Zelda. And while there are no dragons to slay in the Mitchell County Courthouse, there are plenty of solutions to seek for the people he has been taxed to serve. And he will never ruin Christmas again. And then there's a photo of him sitting at a computer. And turning the page, 
Algona man accused of cop killing waves speedy trial. The trial of an Algona man accused of shooting and killing Algona police officer Kevin Cram last September has been pushed back in order to accommodate the schedule of Cram's family. Authorities say Cram, age 33, was shot and killed while on duty just before 8 p.m. September 13, 2023, as he tried to serve an arrest warrant uh, to 43-year-old Kyle Lou Rickey. Cram was pronounced dead at the Kasuth Regional Health Center in Algona. According to court records, Rickey will now face trial on first-degree murder charges at 9.30 a.m. June 25 in Kasuth County. He pleaded not guilty on October 5th and waived his right to a speedy trial later that same month. First-degree murder convictions carry a mandatory life sentence in the state of Iowa. Cram, a husband and father of three, had been an officer in Algona since 2015 and previously served as an officer in Nora Springs. Our next story, Chief Deputy Announces Bid for Sheriff. Cerro Gordo County Chief Deputy David Hepperly announced last week that he will run for sheriff as Cerro Gordo County Sheriff Kevin Powles will retire at the end of this year. In a post on his campaign Facebook page, David Hepperly for Cerro Gordo County Sheriff, Hepperly stated, I am proud to announce that I'm running for sheriff of Cerro Gordo County in the upcoming election. As current chief deputy sheriff, I've had the honor of serving the citizens of Cerro Gordo County the past 22 years. I'd like to continue serving the communities of Cerro Gordo County as your next sheriff. Thank you for your support as I'm excited for this new opportunity. Hepperly's Post also said that further announcements and details were yet to come. He's vying for the seat alongside Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's Office Lieutenant Matt Clunder and former Sheriff's Deputy Brian Koob. Sheriff Powell's announced his retirement in a statement earlier this month. Principal who risked his life in Perry school shooting died. An Iowa principal who put himself in harm's way to protect students during a school shooting earlier this month died on Sunday, a funeral home confirmed. Caldwell Parish Funeral Home and Crematory confirmed the death of Perry High School principal Dan Marburger after the family announced it on a GoFundMe page. Marburger was critically injured during the January 4th attack, which began in the school's cafeteria as students were gathering for breakfast before class. An 11-year-old middle school student was killed in the shooting. Six other people were injured. The 17-year-old student who opened fire also died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound. The day after the shooting, the State Department of Public Safety said Marburger, quote, acted selflessly and placed himself in harm's way in an apparent effort to protect his students, unquote. News of his death was first posted on a GoFundMe page for his family. The post by Marburger's wife, Elizabeth, said he died at about 8 a.m. Sunday and said, quote, Dan lost his battle. He fought hard and he gave us 10 days that we will treasure forever, unquote. The news that Marburger died died triggered a flood of support on the Perry Facebook page, with nearly 200 people posting condolences within the first hour after it was posted. In a Facebook post on the night of the shooting, the principal's daughter, Claire, called his fa- her father rather a gentle giant and said it wasn't surprising that her father tried to protect his students. Quote, As I heard of a gunman, I instantly had a feeling that my dad would be a victim 
as he would put himself in harm's way for the benefit of the kids and his staff, his daughter wrote, just dad. Warburger had been principal since 1995. Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation spokesman Mitch Mortfett said after the shooting that Marburger did some pretty significant things to protect others, but he did not release details. Clark Wicks said Marburger was a hero who intervened with the teenage gunman so students could escape. An 11-year-old sixth grader, Amir Jolliffe, was killed in the shooting. Authorities say he was shot three times. The shooting happened just after 7.30 a.m., January 4th, shortly before classes were set to begin on the first day back after winter break. Mortfitt said the shooting started in the cafeteria, where students from several grades were eating breakfast. It then spilled outside the cafeteria, was, but was contained to the north end of the school. And there's one obituary in the Mason City Globe Gazette today. Vonda Lee Schmidt passed away peacefully January 10th in Kimberly, Wisconsin. She was born May 5th in Rudd, May 5th, 1935, rather, in Rudd, Iowa. Uh, visitation, Friday, January 19th at the Lodi Presbyterian Church in Lodi, Wisconsin. And that will, a visitation will take place 9.30 to 11 a.m. that day with a memorial service to follow. In lieu of flowers, donations may be made to that church. Our next story, Our Own Hearts Brings Warmth and Welcome to Refugees of War and Persecution. The church days of packing mission barrels for overseas may be over, but the need to help those with life challenges remains. Just after Christmas, quilts made and donated by First Presbyterian women were carried from Mason City to Ames, to supply those from other countries in need of warm comfort. Our own hands, our quilt group, meets on the second and fourth Thursday mornings of the week to press and tie quilts made by volunteers in the church. At other times, you can hear the whir of sewing machines as sewers like Jackie Went and Donna Lee Olson piece together the quilts. Susan Kramer leads the Ames Interfaith Refugee Alliance Group, to help the expected wave of those escaping life-threatening situations in their home countries. Iowa church leaders learned last year to expect 2,000 such people to locate to Iowa from Ukraine and elsewhere. Those people had applied for refuge in America. Refugee coordinators learned during earlier such migrations to locate cultural groups in the same large city instead of a few families in this town or that town hosted by individual churches. It made them feel less isolated. Kramer of Collegiate Presbyterian Church of Ames said they have a strong group of volunteers, but support from other churches in the state is important. The quilts are showing the refugees that the welcome is unified, she said. The people from other parts of the state approve of them coming here. Smaller churches from around the state can also be part of this mission by doing support work. But when But the refugees aren't the only ones who are touched by the quilt mission of the Mason City Presbyterian. It really touched all the volunteers. They're so thankful as well, those who knew you were donating the quilts, Kramer added. A total of eight quilts made by Our Own Hearts Quilting Mission will help the group that serves 45 Ukrainians. Some quilts, though, are helping refugees from warmer climates, like South Sudan, Haiti, Honduras, and Venezuela. Among them is a Honduran woman who arrived in Iowa earlier and now has a job. 
her reason to escape Honduras, death threats for testifying in court against a dangerous criminal. The U.S. government allowed her to bring other members of her family over this year. For now, First Presbyterian quilters are working on more quilts to donate both to the refugees and also to Mason City Missions. Church members who have helped start this mission, including those who have donated fabric, quilts, set up the sewing room, and learned the joys of pressing, cutting, and tying. Instead of quilting down the batting, we tie it together, which does not take sewing skills. Anyone is welcome to join us or contribute in other ways. If you have any finished quilts or just top quilts that you've had stacked in a closet, please donate them to us and we can turn them into warm and comforting quilts. If you can sew, we have simple pre-cut kits to let you whip up a quilt in your own time. Fabric is also welcome, and financial donations are welcome to pay for the batting. If you have uh, any questions or want to join our group, you can call Donna Lee Olson, and her number is 641-210-2433. And turning to opinions, we have a letter to the editor. This comes from Patricia Schultz of Nora Springs. And Patricia writes, The Republican Party in Iowa, led by our governor, seems intent on destroying our education system. First, it was the voucher program, which takes money from K-12 schools. Governor Reynolds denies this, but the numbers say otherwise. Second, came the book banning laws. Yes, sexually explicit books are not appropriate for young students. However, school librarians and teachers are trained to select age-appropriate materials. No evidence shows grooming for any sexual choices. Using age-appropriate materials to discuss, without sexual reference, why a classmate has two dads or two moms is neither dangerous nor disgusting. Older students deserve a wide variety of resources, including those in which they can see themselves. The next step, banning diversity training and lessons related to racism and sexism. This leaves teachers without important training and with questions about what they can teach. Student bodies today are diverse. Teachers need help understanding and addressing needs. Middle and high school students should learn the truth about racism and gender divergent discrimination. Iowa's area education agencies provide essential professional services, especially to rural schools. Only larger schools can possibly hire their own speech pathologists, experts in ADHD, dyslexia, mental health, and more. The agencies already suffered cuts, but Governor Reynolds called for, quote, investigating with an eye toward reductions, creating justified fears of elimination. The governor also called for investigating state-funded colleges and universities to ferret out diversity training and to question what is being taught with possible funding cuts if, quote, problems exist. Some institutions in Iowa and nationally have already experienced assaults. Academic freedom has long been cherished in this country, but Reynolds joins her party's attempts to limit, quote, excessive liberalism, unquote. All these actions weaken public education, a cornerstone of our democracy. At the moment, we are helpless to stop these affronts. We need not remain so. The ballot box is our best option. And that is from Patricia Schultz of Norris Springs. We have another letter from Kathy Carter of Rockford, 
and she writes, In her January 9 address, Governor Reynolds stated, quote, Iowans elected us to create and execute policies that carry out their will, not to outsource the authority that others authority to others that they can't hold accountable at the ballot box, Reynolds said. Quote continues, while many boards and commissions will continue to play an important role, the democratic process is the best way to preserve Iowans' engagement in their government, unquote. Does that include the will to not have to bow to eminent domain for private companies? Does that include the authority of the IUB, which Iowans can't hold accountable at the ballot box? Practice what you preach, Governor. And that letter from Kathy Carter of Rockford. And another opinion, it's a guest opinion adapted from remarks given by Mason City Fire Chief Eric Bullinger at the January 5th retirement ceremony for Fire Captains Steve Bull and Dave Orr. And it shows a headshot of um, Eric Bullinger. Today we celebrate the remarkable careers of Captains Steve Bull and Dave Orr, who've given a combined 60 years of service to our community. It's impossible not to reflect on the profound profound impact they've had and the countless lives that they've touched. I'm going to steal something from a speech I heard earlier this week because I feel that it fits here very well. Quote, never sell short the power of your example, unquote. Leadership is not about titles or positions. It's about the ability to inspire others to achieve greatness. In that regard, both Captain Bull and Captains Bull and Orr have exemplified true leadership. They've led with unwavering courage, dedication, and a commitment to the greater good. They did this by bringing, being the example. In the face of adversity, they stood as beacons of strength, guiding their crew through the most challenging of times. In the fire service, friendship and brotherhood are not just words. They make up a strong foundation for, of our existence. Captains Bull and Orr, over the course of their careers, forged bonds with their crews that transcend the professional realm. The, they became more than captains. From day one, they were brothers, standing shoulder to shoulder in the face of danger and finding solace in each other's company during moments of respite. The camaraderie they built among other firefighters has not only enriched their lives, but has also set an example for all of us to follow. A career in the fire service is a journey marked by selflessness, sacrifice, and an unyielding commitment to public service. For decades, Steve and Dave embodied the essence of being civil servants. They didn't just respond to emergencies, they served as pillars of strength for our community, providing comfort in times of distress. Their dedication to the well-being of others has left an indelible mark on the fabric of our community, and for that, we are profoundly grateful. And that's the halfway point of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. I'm your reader, Mary Francis, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. Now we'll turn over to the Fort Dodge Messenger, see what's going on there. Front page, of course, Trump wins Iowa caucuses. Former president dominates Webster County Caucus. Then there's a photo here of a man with a Trump, a white Trump hat talking into a microphone. And the caption says, State Senator Tim Cryenbrink, Republican of Fort Dodge, speaks on behalf of former President Donald Trump Monday evening 
uh, during the caucus at Fort Dodge Senior High School. Former President Donald Trump easily won the Webster County Republican Caucus Monday evening on his way to a statewide victory. Trump crushed all of his opponents by winning 652 votes from local caucus goers. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis placed second with 158 votes. Nikki Haley, 93 votes. Vivek Ramaswamy, 69 votes. And little-known Ryan Blinkley, Binkley, rather, 8 votes. There's another photo here of folks in a gymnasium. Um, and someone standing on the floor talking to the people up in the seats. And the copy continues... About 2,000 people filled the gym at Fort Dodge Senior High School for the caucus. That's almost as many as attended a November campaign appearance there by Trump. At times, Monday's caucus seemed like a Trump rally. Mere mention of the former president's name drew long and loud applause from the crowd. State Senator Tim Cryenbrink spoke on behalf of Trump. He described the former president as a true patriot, a tried and trusted leader. He said that three years ago, when Trump left office, inflation was reasonable, crime was low, and the nation's southern border was under control. Kreinbrink invited the group to compare those conditions to today. Later, he was asked what makes Trump so popular locally. No, number one, everything that he campaigned on, he did, the senator replied. If he would have not had opposition in Congress, even from members of his own party, he would have gotten a lot more done, he said. State Representative Ann Meyer, Republican of Fort Dodge, spoke on behalf of DeSantis, who she called the one true conservative in the race. Quote, when Ron DeSantis is our president, he'll secure the border, and he actually has a plan to pay for building the wall, she said. And Steve Larson spoke on behalf of Ramaswamy. He challenged those present to vote for a cause rather than a man. Quote, Vivek is our last chance to make sure the America First movement outlives Trump, he said. And then it's got a list of the Webster County results. Donald Trump, 652. Ron DeSantis, 158. Nikki Haley, 93. Vivek Ramaswamy, 69. Ryan Binkley, 8. And write-ins, 2. Our next story from The Messenger, Upper Des Moines Opportunity has new location. The Fort Dodge office of Upper Des Moines Opportunity, Inc. has a new home in a new centralized location in downtown Fort Dodge. The UDMO office moved from its former location on First Avenue South to its new site at 704 Central Avenue, Suite 200 in early December. A move in the middle of winter is never fun, said Alicia, Alyssa Schleins, Family and Community Services Director. And then in the midst of a busy season, it made it a little bit more challenging. UDMO provides an array of different services for local families. From October 1 through April 30 each year, they work with local low-income families with their energy assistance program. The agency also has a food pantry, it's available by appointment and is a drive through on the third Thursday of the month. Schleins also highlighted the baby's room, where parents of children from birth to the age of two can shop for needed items, as well as the birthday room, where parents with children up to the age of eight can choose gifts and birthday party supplies for their child. They are open from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. 
We're super excited about our new space and being more downtown and hopefully centrally located for families, Schlein said. They will have an open house this Friday, 2.30 to 4, to welcome visitors to their new space. And I'll have to let you know that uh, the Fort Dodge Messenger did not have a edition yesterday for MLK Day. In today's paper, there's very, very little here. I've done pretty much all of the local news there for you. So now we'll turn to obituaries. Marilyn A. Powers, age 74, of Fort Dodge, passed away Thursday, January 11, at her home. Funeral services, Wednesday, January 17th, 11 a.m., in the chapel of the Lafersweiler Funeral Home. Burial will follow at the Corpus Christi Cemetery. There will be a visitation one hour prior to the service on Wednesday at the funeral home. Shirley Vincent, that's V-I-N-S-A-N-D, passed away Friday, January 12th. Funeral will be Thursday the 18th at the Faith United Methodist Church in Humboldt at 11 a.m. A visitation will take place Wednesday, 5 to 7, at the Mason Lindhart Funeral Home. Maynard Weimers, that's W-I-E-M-E-R-S, age 94, of Gilmore City, passed away January 24 at the Springvale Independent Living Center in Humboldt. Funeral services, Saturday, January 20, at the First Lutheran Church in Gilmore City at 11. Burial will be at the Marble Valley Cemetery in Gilmore City with military rites conducted by the U.S. Navy and the Gilmore City American Legion Post number 239. Visitation will be from 9.30 to 11 on Saturday at the church. The Lentz Funeral Home in Gilmore City is serving the family. Our next obituary, Yvonne Bonnie Peterson, age 76, of Fort Dodge, passed away Sunday, January 14, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. Funeral services, Thursday, January 18, 11 a.m., in the chapel of the Lafersweiler Funeral Home. Visitation will begin one hour prior to the service at the funeral home. Kathleen L. Nelson, age 90, of Fort Dodge, passed away Tuesday, January 10. A service honoring Kathy's, Kathy's life will be Saturday, January 20, Gunderson Funeral Chapel, at 11 a.m., Visitation will be in that same location from 10 to 11 a.m. Janet Kinney, that's K-I-N-N-E, age 82, of Eagle Grove, died January 11th at the Southfield Wellness Nursing Home in Webster City. Funeral services were held January 15th at the Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. Kenneth Servine, that's C-E-R-V-I-N-E, age 91, of Badger, passed away January 15th at the Marion Home. Services are pending at the Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Service. Marvin Wergeland, that's W-E-R-G-E-L-A-N-D, passed away Tuesday, January 9. Funeral will be Friday the 19th, 11 a.m. at our Savior's Lutheran Church in Humboldt. Visitation will take place at 10 a.m., at the same church. Burial will happen at the Trinity Lutheran Cemetery. Cheryl M. Allen, 60 years old, of Clare, 
passed away Wednesday, January 10th at her home. Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. Friday the 19th at the Holy Trinity Catholic Church in Fort Dodge. Uh, Burial will follow at the St. James Cemetery in Clare. There will be a visitation at the Lofersweiler Funeral Home on Thursday, January 18th from 4 to 7 p.m. Jennifer Inman, uh, funeral, it's not showing when she passed, funeral Saturday the 20th, 10.30 a.m. at the St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rolf. visitation Friday uh, from 4 to 6 p.m. at the funeral home in Rolf. And I believe that's the Powers Funeral Home. And Robert Bob Schumacher, age 93 of Iowa Falls, passed away Thursday the 11th. Um, it says his final days were spent at home, where he was comforted, comforted and celebrated by his family. Visitation, Friday, January 19, is St. Mary's Catholic Church in Ackley. Um, visitation will be 4 to 7 um, and then uh, Rosary at 7. Mass of Christian Burial, Saturday, January 20th, 10.30 at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Ackley, with more visitation one hour before Mass. Mass will be followed immediately by a committal at St. Joseph's Cemetery in Duncombe, with military rites conducted by the VFW Post 1856 and the U.S. Air Force Honor Guard. There will be a luncheon to follow at the Corpus Christi Center in Fort Dodge. And we'll turn to the sports page now. Uh, Hunter Horn, uh, career his career night carries the gales. Hunter Horn scored a career-high 32 points as the St. Edmund boys downed Manson Northwest Webster Thursday night, 71-53. Horn, a sophomore, was coming off a then-high of 29 points in a win over Algona. He also had 17 rebounds with a block and a steal. Sam Maracle drained six three-pointers to finish with 22 points while adding nine rebounds. And J.T. Lofersweiler hit a pair of triples to score 10 for the Gales, who've won two of three to start 2024. Moved the ball very well, said head coach, head coach Adolf Kockendorfer. We have several capable shooters, and when you make the extra pass, you give them an even better shot. With Hunter doing his thing down low, Sam, JT, and the other guys knocked down shots outside. I thought we gave Manson Northwest trouble with our defense. Jack McElroy did a nice job on Logan Moline, and we kept him in check early on. Moline, a junior, who has averaged almost 27 points per game coming in, finished with 23, but had just five at the half as St. Edmund raced out to a 36-14 advantage. Horn scored 16 in the first 16 minutes, and Maracle knocked down three of his three-pointers during a 19-4 run to start the contest. I think they're getting comfortable with each other, Kockendorfer said. We've only had our complete team a couple of times this year, because of injuries and sickness. We were able to get healthy over the break, and it feels like they're getting more familiar with one another. After the break, the Gales continued to execute on offense, and Horn accounted for 10 in the third to help keep the score out of reach. Before Manson Northwest Webster won 66-64 last year, the Gales had claimed seven consecutive wins in the series. 
These guys that are back really wanted this one, Kockendorfer said. These kids uh, know each other, and it was important for them to gain bragging rights in this series. St. Edmunds returns to the floor on Tuesday when they travel to Clarion Goldfield Dows. They are also set to host Eagle Grove on Thursday in a contest postponed due to weather. Manson Northwest plays host to Southeast Valley on Tuesday. We've got some girls basketball with the title Historic Honor, Dateline's Ames. Audie Crooks is used to setting records, but she's also quick to deflect recognition. For the first time in Iowa State women's basketball history, Crooks is the first Cyclone freshman to be named Big 12 Player of the Week. I apologize, this is college, not high school. Being the first freshman named Big 12 Player of the Week feels great, Crooks said. I believe that it reflects heavily on the success of the team, and I just hope to continue producing and impacting our collective success. The weekly honor is coupled with Crooks's two Big 12 Freshman of the Week accolades as Iowa State jumps into the AP poll at number 24. The rankings don't change a thing for us, Crooks said. We've always known what we're capable of doing, and we're starting to turn some heads. Crooks, a Bishop Garrigan graduate, is the daughter of the late Fort Dodge graduate Jimmy Crooks and Michelle Cook, who had a big week, and Crooks had a big week for the Cyclones. She led the Cyclones to a pair of victories over top 25 foes. Crooks had her second career double-double, scoring 22 points with 11 rebounds as the Cyclones rallied from 19 points down in the third quarter to beat number 24 West Virginia. It felt great to beat two ranked teams, especially at Hilton, Crooks said. It just shows what we've known all along, that we're here to compete. The freshman center hit a go-ahead basket with 24 seconds left, which stood as the game winner, capping a 23-point performance against then number 4 Baylor. Beating a team like Baylor was huge, having a battle that forced us to evaluate ourselves and really dig deep to pull off that win, Crooks said. And now we know what we're capable of when we play with and for each other. It's the first time since February of 2023 that a Cyclone has earned the league's top honor. Crooks averaged 22.5 points, 8.5 rebounds, and shot 57.6% from the floor. The 2023 Miss Iowa Basketball leads Iowa State this season with 16.7 points per game, while shooting with a Division I freshman best 61.5% from the floor. In conference play, she's averaging 18 a game and 7.8 rebounds. And here's some high school girls wrestling. Dodgers honor senior girls on the mat. And it shows a photo of Delaney O'Connor of Fort Dodge um, just on top of and getting ready to pin Ames's Lily Anderson on Thursday. Of course, there have been a lot of school closing and delays, so there hasn't been much in the way of sports these last few days. So a lot of these stories are from events that happened last week. The Fort Dodge seniors wanted to go out with a bang on their night Thursday. The seniors, gir, the senior girls trio of Andy Barwin, 120, Macy Brown, 130, and Maddie Poulos, 170, had only one win between the three against Ames inside the FDSH gym, but they didn't go down without a fight. The Dodgers won four head-to-head matches and earned a forfeit in a 45-27 loss to the Little Cyclones. 
Poulis, a senior at Webster City, picked up her 30th win of the season, pinning A.K. Nolan in 100, or 1 minute 8 seconds at 170 pounds. Maddie wanted to go and get that win, said FDSH head coach John Connick. She did what she usually does and controlled the match. I'm proud of her for coming out and being a leader for us. Brown went for it all against third-rated Alexis Winky at 130 pounds. Brown took Winky down and had her on her back, but Winky reversed it and ultimately earned the fall. Barwin dropped a tough contest with Lexa Rozevink, that's R-O-Z-E-V-I-N-K, R-O-Z-E-V-I-N-K, um, dropped a tough contest with her, losing by fall in the second period. Winky moved up a weight, and I asked Macy if she wanted to wrestle, Kinnick said. She said yes, and I told her to go out there and make a splash. She did exactly that and nearly pulled off an upset. Number three sophomore, Mariah Benedict, made quick work of Sarah Higgins, earning a fall in 44 seconds at 135 pounds. Mariah has lofty goals, Connick said. She goes out there and wrestles hard every time out. Junior Delaney O'Connor earned the third fall for the Dodgers, pinning Lily Anderson in 1 minute 56 at 140 pounds. Delaney has been wrestling tough, Kinnick said. I'm not shocked about how she has been competing and improving. Freshman Caitlin Van DeMark, that's D-E-M-A-R-K, a Webster City freshman, controlled her entire match against Kate Batting at 115 pounds, pick, pick, picking up a 7-0 decision. She has performed well for us, Kinnick said. Once Araya Fellers suffered an injury, Caitlin stepped in and has been competing well. Sophomore Gracie Harvey earned a forfeit victory. The Dodgers are back in action Thursday when they will host the Iowa Alliance Conference Tournament in the FDSH gym. Action there begins at 5.30 p.m. And the final score of the meet is Ames 45, Fort Dodge 27. And some more wrestling, this time the boys high school. Second-ranked FDSH rolls past Little Cyclones. On a night honoring their seniors, the second-ranked Fort Dodge wrestling team made quick work of a shorthanded Ames squad. In nine matches of head-to-head competition, the Dodgers, 8-2 and two overall, won six on their way to a 61-14 victory in their regular season home finale on Thursday night, ahead of a major winter storm. Dodger seniors Drew Ayala at 120 pounds, Kane Buttrick at 132, Bo Cowell at 165, Demarion Ross at 175, and Cal Hartman uh, at 190 were all honored for their four years of work wearing the red and black. The class of 2024 went 4-1 and one on the evening, including a 2-1 mark in active mas- matches. These seniors have meant a lot to the program, said FDSH head coach Bobby Thompson. He's now 289 and 142 in his coaching career. They have a lot of state medals, seven between them, he said. They have been great mentors and have helped lead the underclassmen. Fort Dodge won 11 matches, including five through forfeit. Ayala, 
26-1, who was ranked third, made easy work of James Hedrick with a 24-9 technical fall in 5 minutes 37 seconds. Buttrick, rated seventh, cruised to a 16-0 second period technical fall victory over Braxton Brown. Drew beat a kid who has 20 wins. He just went out there and worked, Thompson said. Kane has a goal to get on the podium at state. He's been getting in a groove. Second-ranked Ross and number 7 Hartman both won by forfeit. Cowell suffered an 11-2 loss to Jason Roberts. For the second time this season, the top-ranked Davidson beat number 4 Jabari Hinson 3-1. It was a tight match that Davidson controlled, and he ultimately prevailed thanks to a second-period takedown. Once again, it was a one-takedown match with a lot of hand-fighting, said Thompson. We will see him at least two more times, so we need to widen the gap. Sam Davidson picked up a four-minute fall over Damian Winkler at 126. Riley Brown stayed above .500 with a fall in 1 minute 47 seconds over Robert Casey at 144 pounds. And the final was Fort Dodge 61, Ames 14. And that's all the time we have today for readings of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. I've been your reader, Mary Francis, um, and you've been listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped. All material heard on IRIS is intended for Iowans with a print disability. We're so glad to have you listening. Have a great day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells, where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.